Hey, I'm going to jump into the message, but don't start my time yet because I want to give a quick update. A lot of you know my mom is uh, battling through breast cancer. We were actually just in Houston at MD Anderson this past week. Come with a great report. The doctors are officially thumbs up for foregoing and not having to do chemotherapy, which is amazing and was my mom's big prayer. So she will go in for surgery at the end of April, and they're believing for a cancer-free uh, prognosis after that. The doctors feel amazing. They continue to say words like lucky and amazing, and we know it's not lucky. His name is Jesus, and he's the healer. Amen? All right, why don't you guys stand, with your feet, stand to your feet with me? We're in the midst of a series called The Awakening. Everybody say The Awakening. The Awakening. We're going through the book of Acts. We're looking at this incredible move of God that happened in the book of Acts, incredible revivals that happened throughout human history, and we're uttering the refrain that if he did it before, he can do it again. Come on, somebody. Last week, Pastor Malik talked about the necessity of the power of God if we want to be disciples or followers of Jesus in this life. If you missed it, I encourage you to check it out on our YouTube or our podcast. This week, I want to talk about what precedes this gospel power, the importance of identity. Turn to your neighbor and say identity. If you're watching in Guyana, turn to a neighbor and say identity. I want to talk about identity. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can do that. Acts chapter 3 will begin in verse 11. If you do not have a Bible, we got Sky Bible on the screen for your viewing enjoyment. Up to this point, Jesus has told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive what? The Holy Spirit, the power from on high. They wait, sure enough, Holy Spirit comes down. Incredible miracles start happening. Peter starts preaching. 3,000 people get saved. It's wild, it's amazing. Peter and John are going to the temple. They pray for a dude that hasn't walked in his entire life. It's been decades. He gets healed and people freaketh outeth and are like, what does this meaneth? And this begins our passage. If you're ready, say preach, preacher. All right, I will. Verse 11, while the man, this is the man who was miraculously healed by the power of God, held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or goodness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Somebody say, ouch. Peter did not mince words. If you like the straight shooter, radical candor, Peter is your dude, right? He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. That's good news. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. And here's his call to action. Repent then, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah, even he who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, speak to our hearts this morning. Allow your word to come alive. Remind us of who you are and who we are as a result. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can find your seats. Quick shout out to the Guyana crew, as Nancy, my wife, mentioned. Michelle, our missions coordinator, and a whole team are there in Guyana right now. They are having a Sunday morning service, one of their first, with the team. They're watching online. Matter of fact, can you turn around to the camera right now and say, we love you, Guyana, on three. One, two, three. There it is. They got three baptisms planned this morning after service. So shout out, yeah, Ruth, Char, Monet, love you all. So proud of you for going all in, following Jesus. Man, it's amazing. All right, I want to begin as I often do with a question. Has anyone here ever been a victim of mistaken identity? Anybody here ever experienced that? The joys, wonders, and terrors? Maybe it was identity fraud. I'm not quite sure, but it is horrible. I remember in what feels like a prior life, I worked for a charity foundation based out of Toronto, which was cold. And, uh, and I remember upon arrival, I was going to be meeting with sort of the director of the foundation. It was this big deal and I was really excited. And, and so I flew into Toronto there in Canada and I was going through customs and uh, you know, it was, a, you know I, it was a good nature. The person doing customs was really friendly and so you know, it's Canada, eh? And so they were like, we we're talking about stuff and it was all good and I like meeting new people. And so we we're going back and forth and then all of a sudden, pff, the mood shifted. And they started asking me all these questions. They're like, oh, so your name is Jonathan Last? I'm like, yeah, we'll be right back. And so I started getting a little nervous. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be stuck here with the moose, the, the meese, the moose, and however you say the plural of moose, for, forever. I'm going to be here for forever. They, they took me into a separate room, and they started interrogating me here at, here at immigration, right before I'm going to get through customs. And, and they're like asking me all these questions. Well, where did you go to high school? Well, when did you graduate high school? Well, what did you do this? And they're asking me all these things, and I'm like, I'm me. Like, I don't know. And so I'm answering all their questions, and finally, it, I, I, they finally come to the end. They're like, well, well we need to let you know that someone has been evading a criminal activity here in Canada and they've been using your identity. I was like, what? They're like, so we needed to make sure that you were the real you because we gotta go after the other person that's not the real you. I'm like, I'm the real me. I don't know why anyone else would wanna be me. I don't, I don't know if there's like spoils of war for that, but it's me, like I, I'm, I'm the me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. We, we, did a, we did a whole little check and we had a team running it and we know you're you and so you're free to go. And I'm like, thank God. So I get out there, I'm over an hour late. The director of the foundation is not thrilled. It was not the best of what, you know, welcome to Canada moment that I was anticipating. And, uh, and I remember the frustration as I'm sitting there steaming. And I'm like, what in the world is happening? I had gone there, I was working for this charity foundation. There was a mission to accomplish. I had this onboarding meeting, but I couldn't do what I was there to do until my identity was clear. Ooh, that'll preach. Maybe you listened last week, thank you. Maybe you listened last week to Pastor Malik and, or maybe you caught it later online and, and, and you were listening to this story of God's miraculous power and signs and wonders and Peter and John say, silver and gold have I none and all the college students are like, amen. And you're like, but what I have I give you, rise up and walk. And you're like, yes, and you're inspired to do it. You're inspired to live it, to walk out this adventure of God's power and his love flowing through us. But I need us to understand something key. God's doing and our doing as a result is always preceded by being. And as I went through this passage and we see this sort of back and forth of God's miraculous power and Peter preaches a sermon and God's miraculous power and Peter preaches a sermon, there's something subtle that Peter is doing in the way he communicates to his audience that if we do not catch it, we will fundamentally miss an aspect of who God is and how he's wired us to thrive. 
is going to get a little theological this morning. You guys up for that? I'll break it down. I'll try to make it tangible, but we're going to put on your thinking caps. We're going to get a little teacher heavy in this sermon. Here's my big idea or premise, and then I'll unpack this as we go, and I hope it becomes super tangible and helpful as we journey along with Jesus. Here's my big idea. In the gospel, what is true leads us to what we do. In the gospel, the way we were designed to thrive and flourish as human beings, what is true leads us to what we do. Are you ready? All right, here we go. There's sort of a hidden theological gem in this passage that if we are not careful, we will breeze right past and miss it. And so I want to unearth it here. This kind of paradigm-shifting truth, a few weeks ago, we had a microchurch conference hosted at the Greenhouse Church in Gainesville. There was this guy, Jeff Vanderstelt, who came and spoke. And ever since that conference, he... he, sort of stepped in to take over for Mars Hill's church after Jeff Driscoll went down. If you've watched the, listened to the podcast, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, he was the guy stepping in to deal with the damage control. And he's like, out of this crazy, chaotic situation, God, God revealed something to me deeply profound. And, and it's been a helpful schema for me in thinking about God and the scriptures as we study. So let me set the scene. Peter is now speaking. Remember, there's been this miraculous healing in the temple courts. Pastor Malik talked about that. And so Buddy, who had never walked in his life, gets up and does the moonwalk. It gets people's attention, right? And so all the, the, his Jewish audience is, is scrambling around. They're like, what's happening? And so Peter stands up to give a response. Now, I know preachers can exaggerate sometimes, okay? A little industry thing. I, I get it. And sometimes preachers will th- say things like, do you realize that you literally put Jesus on the cross? These people literally put Jesus on the cross, right? Like, they, they lit, like it was their actual vocal cords that were screaming out, you know, no, we want Barabbas the murderer. Take, crucify Jesus, right? This is who Peter is preaching to. And in the midst of this context, he gives this idea of hope for this audience. You want to talk about amazing grace, how sweet the sound. To Kayla's point, if you feel like you're too far gone, did you literally put Jesus on the cross? No, then you, you got space here. You got space here. You're like, I did spiritually and metaphorically. I, exactly, so that you still got space here. And Peter begins to preach this reality of Jesus. And he, be, he, he sort of, well, let's look at it together. Verse 19. Peter says this, he says at the very end of his diatribe, he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He says, repent, why? So that times of refreshing may come. Repent, refreshing. It's really an interesting pairing if you think about it. These words paired together, let's do a little case study here. When you hear the word repent, What's the first image that comes to mind? Usually when, when people are polled, you're thinking about things like fire or, or judgment or, or, or condemnation. But Peter is sort of giving repentance a holy glow up here. Yeah, I like that. He, he's given at this moment where all of a sudden he's associating repentance with what? With refreshing. Why? How? What have we missed? If, if our gut reaction when we hear repentance is not refreshing, then we've missed something Peter is preaching. It's a game changer. It has the potential to correct a lot of bad theology that often run, runs rampant in church and, and sort of bring it back to a space of biblical truth. 
So I want to look at this gospel paradigm he uses with his Jewish audience that is fundamentally different from what we often encounter in this life, in this world, religious and irreligious spaces. And it's easy to miss because, as I mentioned, Peter is, I mean, he's coming with heat. Peter is not pulling punches. Peter is Mr. Radical Candor. People are like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Look what God did. And he's like, yeah, and you killed him. Right? That is Peter's sermon. Buddy, he, he did not have the most uh, decorum or diplomatic tact, but Buddy was honest to the core. But I need us to notice his first move here. Peter begins by deferring to God. The crowd looks around and they watch this miraculous healing. And what does the crowd want to talk about? The healing. The crowd wants to talk about the thing that was done. The crowd wants to talk about, Peter, how did you do this? John, how did you do this? How did this happen? The crowd wants to talk about what Peter did, but Peter does not allow the conversation to start there. This is what the world starts a conversation with. You meet a new person, what's the first question you ask him? Hey, what do you do? It's not just a religious thing, it's a human thing. We begin the conversation by asking about human beings and what we do, but this is not where the gospel starts. All right, this is key. This is fundamental to establishing an appropriate foundation. Peter begins it like this, look at verse 12. They all gather around, they're astonished, they come running, they they stop there, and Peter notices the scenario and says, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or goodness, we have made this man walk. Peter doesn't start with what he did. He doesn't start with the miracle. He doesn't start with his actions. What Peter does is he immediately defers power and honor to who? To God. He begins his proclamation, to say it another way, with God's being, with God's identity, with God's nature. He makes the claim that, listen, I don't know why you guys are so surprised. This is fundamentally who God is. He's the eternal. He's the one true God. And in context, in light of this miraculous healing, well, this man who had not walked in his entire life ends up walking. Peter is pointing out that God is not just all-powerful creator of all things. He is also the healer of all people. He starts off with God's identity. That's where he begins his sermon. And then he moves into from God's being, his identity into God's doing or what, he, we, or what God has done. People have just seen the miraculous work of God in the life of the once lame man who is now standing with Peter and John. And he knows he's got them. Like, by the way, how many of you would listen when someone you've known for decades who's never walked before all of a sudden is walking, right? Like, you're like, okay, you got my attention. That's a pretty cool magic trick. How in the world did you do that? Verse 16, Peter says this. He says, it's by faith in the name of Jesus. That's how this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. You ever tempted to take credit when you know it wasn't really you? At the job, dad's with your kids, something goes great, and you're like, well, you know, I just, uh, you know. Every temptation, I mean, buddy, had, this is a miracle of miracles, and what does Peter do? He immediately deflects attention from him and puts it back on God. He starts with God's being, God's very identity. He's the God who saves, and, and he, he makes a point that God's being leads to God's doing, which is bringing salvation and life and wholeness to those who believe in him. Why? Because redemption through Jesus, Peter points out, is holistic in nature. 
This is not unique to what Peter's preaching. He's not saying or proposing anything new. This is what we see in the trajectory of Scripture. Psalm 103, 2 through 3 says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are Healed. This is what they believed already about God, but it's going from the realm of theory to the realm of actual, real, experienced life. Salvation and healing, they were intertwined in the, in the Jewish mind. They were intertwined in the biblical mind. And so Peter starts with God's being or his identity as savior and healer to then connect it to what God did. In other words, God's being leads to God's doing. God's being leads to God's doing. This is the beginning part of the biblical framework for thinking about life. God's being leads to God's doing. Turn to your neighbor and say, God's being leads to God's doing. Then, so, so he starts there. Peter, the, the conversation has every potential to start about what he did. He backs it all the way up to God's being, his identity. Then he goes into what God did. Then a result of what God does, our fundamental being is transformed. Right, we see it in this, this lame man. He, he's fundamentally changed. He's changed externally. He can now walk. He's healed. He's delivered. We see in the next few chapters, he starts rolling with these followers of Jesus. He's like, listen, I never met Jesus in the flesh maybe, or maybe I did, but if he can do that in my body, then I got, he's got my soul too. He's got all of me, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. We call that our being. God's being leads to God's doing, which leads to our being. And then finally, the response, the response of Peter or the response of this man after they have encountered the one true living God and it has changed who they are, what is it? They begin to do differently. They start testifying about this incredible Messiah, Jesus. They begin telling other people of his goodness and his salvation, of the healing that they began. They end up doing differently, but it's the very end of the response tree. See, our being subsequently leads to our doing. This is the final element of this gospel paradigm. Are you, guys, are you guys tracking with me here? It starts with God's being, identity, and out of who he is, he does, God's doing, then he shifts fundamentally who we are, our being, and then and only then, out of our new identity comes our doing. You tracking with me? Now this order, I know this is kind of like some heady stuff, but it gets very, very practical because this order matters immensely. The technical terms, we talked about this a little bit, for these first three steps, God's being and God's doing and our being, the technical term for these first three movements in this paradigm are called indicatives. Everybody say indicatives. Indicatives. The final movement, or our doing, is called an imperative. Does this sound familiar to anybody? We did a sermon about this like several months ago. Okay, nobody, so that's, that's good. Thank you so much. Praise the Lord. All right, glad we're going through it again. I know some of your students are just coming back from spring break. You're like, Pastor John, I did not come to class. All right, I'm out of class right now. I'm trying to be at church. Okay, I, I get you, but this is huge. Matter of fact, stand up with me for a second. Just, just, just stand up. Everybody stand up with me. Turn to your neighbor and say, these two words can change your life. Say, you got to listen. Okay, you guys are good sports. You have a seat. Guyana, I hope you guys stood up. Otherwise, you're in disobedience to spiritual authority. You should repent. <laughs> Michelle, you got to work with them. 
Indicatives and imperatives. I'm telling you, they sound like weird, random words, but they will change your life if you can grab hold of this principle. This is huge. If I'm being honest, as as a pastor in church spiritual life, this is where we blow it most of the time and lead people in paths of destruction rather than paths of flourishing. Indicatives discuss who God is, what he's done, who he's doing, what he will do. They're his very identity. Imperatives are used when we are expressing what we should do. They're both important. They're both biblical. They're both in the equation, but there is a specific relationship between the two, namely what God commands us to do or the imperative, is based off of what he has done, is doing, or will do, the indicative. Now here's the problem. Often in humanity, but included in religious sectors and even in the church, is that a lot of time we focus exclusively on the imperatives, what we should do, without first looking at the indicatives, what God has done, is doing, or will do. And as a result of getting the order wrong, we get the results wrong as well. If you've ever been trying your hardest to do the right thing and you just can't do it, if you've ever been stuck in a cycle of rinse and repeat spiritual failures, if you've ever found yourself stuck in shame, frustration, and bitterness, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Most likely it was not a lack of the power or love of God. We know that, right? It was that somewhere the order got switched on us. See, how this should work is that what is true, the indicatives, lead us to what we do, the imperatives. Or to say it another way, in the gospel, what is true leads us to what we do. Now, what often happens is is in religious settings, all we hear is commands without the heart of God behind it. And, and so we'll, maybe you're, you're here for the first time visiting a, a space of God, faith. You know, maybe you're checking out Christianity, or you're checking out Christianity online, and, and you'll hear someone say something like, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, here's what's in the Bible. You need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend because God said you shouldn't sleep with anyone that you're not married to. And you're like, uh, no, I'm good. I, I'm good now. Not gonna do that. Why? You're like, number one, I, I, I like sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. It, it, it's good. I mean, all, all respect to the big man upstairs, but I enjoy it, number one. And number two, I feel connected to that person when I'm intimate with them. And, and so for me and a lot of people, it, it helps me. It makes me feel loved and wanted. Which, by the way, are, are two very deep needs of the human soul. So I, I totally get that. And if all you hear is good advice of how you need to stop doing what you're doing because you just need, because God said so, you just need to stop doing it, then what you end up hearing, if we're not careful, from these life-giving imperatives or commands of God are really just joy-killing religious shackles that are robbing you of intimacy and connection. Which is why the indicatives have to come first. Can I, can I illustrate this for you guys real quick? All right, I was going to do it anyways, but I'm glad you gave me permission. Colossians 3, look at Colossians 3, 2 through 4. This is a great passage. Paul preaches this. I think it illustrates the point, and I'm hoping, Lord, by your spirit, give me grace to make this clear, because I know it's theoretical, but it's deeply practical. Paul says this, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Paul begins, he's about to give them an imperative. He's about to tell them what they must do, and it's going to be a serious one. But before he does that, he begins, just like Peter, with an indicative reality. He begins with God's being and God's doing and our being. Check this out. He's basically telling them, hey, listen, God is love, and he saved you from a wandering, meaningless life. He wrapped up your insecurity and your fledgling and frail identity into the radically eternal security that is found in the new reality of Jesus and his love for you. You now have access to wholeness and freedom and joy and life abundantly. The realities of heaven available now. God, the author of love, the creator of intimacy is pouring that love into you and through you freely whenever you want it. You were so wanted and loved by God that he gave up everything for you and Jesus is your life now. He's the source of your identity, strength, meaning the ultimate relationship that gives life to you. Yeah, this is good. This is how he sets it up. And so now, with that indicative reality in mind and in place, let's read the next verse, or the imperative, or our doing. God's being, God's doing, our being, our doing. He says, therefore, let's just stop at that one word. I hope you see it. He begins the imperative with therefore. What does therefore mean? In light of what I've just said, because separated from what I've just said, the therefore is not gonna make any sense. Therefore, because of what you just heard, because of the great love that God has for you, therefore, because your new life and your new identity, the absolute core of who you are is found in Jesus, not in your sexuality, not in the fickle love of some man or woman who statistically will probably break up with you or leave you from somebody else because you already died to that need elsewhere because of what Jesus has done and what he saved you into. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Do you, do you hear it hit differently? He says, therefore, it's pastoral. It's coming from the heart of your Father in heaven. He says, therefore, money and sex, they don't define you anymore. Why give yourself to something that's never gonna satisfy is it working? Has it ever worked? You're not meant for unsatisfaction. You're not meant for a perpetual cycle of rinse and repeat frustration and emotional turmoil. You were born into newness and security, so don't settle for anything less. Does that make more sense now? Don't you hear that differently? When, you're com when it's coming from a space of who you are, the, the being of God, the doing of God, and your new identity in Jesus, it just hits different. And if we do not pair the indicatives with the imperatives, we miss the fact that in the gospel, what is true leads us to what we do. And the problem is that in church so often, we minor on the indicatives and we major on the imperatives and we get the order wrong. Because if we're not careful, what we accidentally disciple ourselves into is a reality where we know we're saved by grace through faith, but we, we believe we're actually gonna stay in the race by our good efforts and good works. Let me illustrate. I'm gonna ask you two questions. I want you to write these down and, and just answer them for yourself. Question number one. When you are bad, you define that as you will. When you are bad, how do you think God feels about you? When you are bad, how do you think God feels about you? Question number two. When you are good, 
how do you think God feels about you? I want you to really think about that. Don't give the right answer. Give the real answer. Because if we're like really the majority of people, you probably said something along the lines of when I'm bad, I feel like God's disappointed in me. I feel like I'm, I'm distant. I feel like I, God's removed himself from me. I feel guilt or shame because of what happened and what I've done. But when I'm good, then God's favorable towards me. Then God loves me. By the way, that's a standard human answer. That is exactly what religion teaches. The problem is that that is not the gospel and the truth of scripture. If you have two different answers for these questions, that, that means that theologically or soteriologically pertaining to salvation is the, the, the theological word there. Though the answer to those two questions is exactly the same. God does not view you any different. If God's being and God's doing are what leads to our being, then our works are not a part of the equation. Right? This is Bible. This is what Ephesians 2 says, that our standing with God comes how? By grace through faith. By grace through faith. You're like, John, do you mean that if I mess up and sin, God still loves me? Yes. What, what if I mess up like, like really big, like I, like I blow it like really bad? Like what, what happens then? It doesn't change who you are. What, what if I keep messing up and, I, and I'm just, I feel so bad, I feel so horrible. Pastor John, I'm trying so hard, but I just keep messing up. Listen, if your faith is in Jesus, you are still God's son or God's daughter and he loves you. This is not cheap grace. This is not sloppy agape. This is not a cop, I don't know where that came from. This is not a cop out. It's not a cop out to, to go and do, there's a Bible joke right there. This is not a cop out to go and do whatever you want. This is, this is Bible. This is the gospel. Peter's sermon goes in to clarify the importance of the order of these things. The indicatives feed the imperatives. The indicatives feed the imperatives and it only works that way. Anything else is just religious effort on humans' parts and it never works. God's being leads to God's doing, which transforms our very nature and leads to our new being, which finally and eventually leads to our doing. Now, I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. You're like, Pastor John, can we just do whatever we want? Like, are, are there going to be consequences for what we do? Heaven, yes. If you sleep around, there's a good chance you get an STI. If you embezzle money from your job, you might get fired. If you lie or gossip about a friend, they're probably not gonna be your friend anymore. There are consequences. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are consequences, earth consequences for what we do, but your standing, your very nature, your identity with God does not change because of what you do if it is truly rooted in what he has done, which is what we believe, right? It's what the Bible teaches. Which, by the way, is why grace is so scandalous because it's absolutely otherworldly. No, no humans deal with us like this. Like, you don't come into your job and you're like, your performance was horrendous, but man, I'm just so proud of who you are and your identity in Jesus. You get a raise, right? Nobody treats us like this but God. Nobody. So don't beat yourself up because you're like, oh my gosh, I've totally fallen into this. Yeah, it's, it's the entire world we're steeped and surrounded in, which is why we must immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel. When we truly believe in all that God is and what he has done through Jesus, what is true or the indicatives lead us to what we do or the imperatives. Our ways are transformed because our nature 
has been transformed. Here's the application point. Every time we approach the scriptures as a faith community, we like to ask two things. God, what are you saying to me? And number two, what do you want me to do about it? Here's what I'm praying we would get incredibly adept at doing, that we would stop skipping steps and tell the whole story. Turn to your neighbor and say, tell the whole story. Tell the whole, that we would tell the whole story. What, what do I mean? I mean this, that, that God's being leads to God's doing, which leads to our being, which leads to our doing. When encountered with your own failures or the failures of others, I am praying to God that we would get really good at going through the whole story. By the way, this is taking repentance deep. This is what Peter says in verse 19. He says, repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Let me go back to that question I asked at the very beginning. How in the world did Peter correlate refreshing and repentance? Here's how. Oftentimes, we have a very limited, narrow, and often unbiblical view of repentance. And so we view repentance as like we, we just dodged a theological bullet of damnation. Like, phew, so glad I did that. Let me never go there again. Peter doesn't say that, right? How do times of refreshing come? Check this out. What is repentance? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Repentance is allowing good shepherd to lead us in paths of righteousness. And if we do it in this framework, can you put that up on the screen one more time? If we start with God's being, then move to God's doing, then move to our being, if we start at the beginning of the story and tell the whole story when we mess up, by the time we get to our doing, we do it out of a place of deep encouragement because we're like, wait a second. I'm loved by God. I'm a son of God. You've been stuck in some sin, some ridiculousness, some foolishness, and you hate it, and you feel so bad, but you can't get out of it, and you're just beating yourself up because all you're doing is spending 95% of your time in the doing quadrant. Tell the whole story. Go back to the beginning. Say, who is God? God is holy. He's kadosh is the Hebrew word. He's set apart. He's fundamentally different. What does God do? He, he set apart his own special people, the scripture says, zealous for good works. Who am I? I'm a royal priesthood. I'm a part of a holy nation. I, I, I've been set apart. So what can I do? I can just be who I am. I can just be who I am. I, I couldn't find the quote, but it stuck with me ever since somebody smart said, <laughs> if we reminded people more who they are, we wouldn't have to tell them so much what to do. By the way, that's like more than half the Bible. Is God just saying, this is who you are? And we're like, oh my God, our, our greatest sin, sometimes it's rebellion, sometimes it's just spiritual amnesia. We all need these like spiritual Simba moments, like Simba, remember who you are. Like we need these moments, like, uh, man, I, sometimes stuff doesn't get in my notes and somehow it comes out of my mouth. But you feel, you feel what I'm saying, right? Like these moments where the, the, our greatest problem is not our doing, friends. Being always precedes doing. If you've been stuck in a trap, you don't need to just try to work harder to change it. That isn't working, right? So what do I do? You tell the whole story. You go back to the very beginning. Repentance is allowing the good shepherd to lead us back on the right path. Repentance is refreshing because if we take it all the way back and tell the whole story, well, let me illustrate this. Imagine that I went to... Uh, my wife and I love pizza. Any, any pizza lovers there? We get our kids into it. Like, we got all the different spots for different types of pizza, right? And so we got the gourmet pizza, and then you get the eat it quick pizza, but you might regret it later. And then you get the, like, spend, spend more money than you think should be reasonable on pizza, but you're going to really enjoy it, pizza. And then, so we like Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza. That is, yes, come on, the people of God say amen. 
We like Anthony's coal fire pizza. So let's say, man, we were, you know, we were in lockdown here in South Florida for so long. Let's say finally we're like, man, we're going to go to Anthony's pizza. We bring the kids out there, Liam and Lucia. And we're like, kids, we're getting everything on the menu. So we order the pizza. We order the salad with the little chickpeas in there and the dressing that's straight from heaven. I'm sure of it. Then we order their meatballs. You ever had meatballs from Anthony's? Oh my goodness, heavenly. And then we're like, man, we're getting the chicken wings. They make these grilled wings with, with cooked onions on top. Anybody getting hungry yet? And we make all of this, right? And my mom's telling me, stop, 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 stop. And we order all of these things. And, 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 and so we're sitting outside, we're having a blast. And there's like one other person. We have the whole area to ourselves and we're enjoying all of this. And, and, and then finally, like we, you know, we eat all we can and we're gonna bring home leftovers. And, and finally we ask the waitress, we're like, okay, we're finally done. Can we get the check? And she starts starts kind of being weird and dodgy about it and you know so you make a joke I mean I don't have to pay if you don't want me to pay you know and and finally the waitress comes back she's like sir I, you know the, somebody actually already paid for your meal this did not happen it could be prophetic though so I wouldn't mind that I'm using this as a metaphor right we did talk about prophecy a lot so I don't know I don't know, but it's a metaphor, theory. All right, so we're there, and, and um, somebody already paid for your meal. And so I'm like, oh, man, and, and my initial response would probably be what? Gratitude. Wow, thank God. Thank you. Jesus paid it all, literally. This is amazing. And Anthony's, you know, and, but let's say I, you know, I just start feeling weird about it, right? I start feeling bad about it. And so I go back to the manager. I'm like, listen, I'm, I'm so sorry that I didn't pay. And the manager's like, no, you're good. I, somebody covered it. I mean, I, I'm not giving it to you for free. Somebody paid for it. I'm like, I know, I know, but I just feel so bad. And, and then I get, I help Nancy, I get the kids in the car, and I'm like, I just can't shake. I go back one more time to the waitress. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know I should have paid. She's like, no, no, somebody pay for it. And then I, ah, no, I know. And I go back. And, and then the next day, I just can't shake it. And so I go back to, to the restaurant. I'm like, listen, guys, I'm so, I feel so guilty that I didn't pay for that meal. I'm so sorry. And they're like, and, then, and I go back a couple times that day, and then I go back the next day. At some point, they're going to be like, this dude is crazy. Why? Because somebody else already paid for it. It's done. Here's the moral of the story. Repentance is refreshing because if you take it all the way back to the beginning of the story, you're reminded God already paid for it. Yeah. And instead of trying to work harder in what we do, more effective repentance, it means training ourselves to see and live more deeper in the reality of who we are, not just what we do. It truly is good news. It's not just good advice. It's the entire point of Jesus coming, right? To do what we could never do. When you really think about it, you're like, duh, that's the whole point. But somehow it gets weird. Why? Because every other sector of our life is different from this. It's why we have to consistently read the scriptures. It's why we have to consistently meet in microchurches and not forsake assembling together. It's why we have to consistently, like Paul said, I preach the gospel to myself. Why? Because if we don't, we drift. And success comes in relinquishing control, expressing our need, and walking the identity of who we are in him. I've got a QR code here up on the screen. And, and it's just a sheet that we grabbed. I think it was from some football coach, actually. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of football. And uh, it's the... It's, sort of a reminder of our identity in Christ. If you've got the Greenhouse app, if you go to the sermon from today, I think it's called Identity, Indicatives, and Imperatives. It's also right there in the app. But I want you to grab a picture of this real quick. Scan this so you have the link on your phone. I would love this week, as you're spending time with God, and especially when you blow it the next time, to take some time and read through this 
as we get really good at telling ourselves the whole story. I guarantee if you focus on these realities on this sheet, they're just Bible verses that reference and remind us of who God says we are, our new identity in Jesus. If we get really good at at taking it back to the beginning when we repent and turn from sin, it's gonna go so much better as we remind ourselves who we really are because in the gospel, what is true leads us to what we do. I'm gonna get ready to wrap it up here. Worship team's gonna lead us in, in a final chorus, but I know it might sound really theoretical, but we know this is the case. If you, if you tell a child they're worth, worthless and they'll never amount to anything, what's gonna happen? They're gonna assume that identity. We are, we've run this experiment. They put a glass lid on their ceiling of self-esteem and abilities, and it's gonna be an uphill battle for the rest of their lives to break through that ceiling. I'm gonna close with this story. In the book, The Art of Possibility, a professor at the New England Conservatory taught a graduate level class about the art of musical performance. He'd been teaching this class for 25 years and he found that students would often be in such a state of anxiety over the measurement of their performance that they would be reluctant to take risks with their playing. So one year he decided, man, forget it. I'm just gonna give everybody an A. That's a true story. And so he gave every, 30 students in his class, he gave every single one of them an A. He said, listen, all you have to do is show up to class. All you gotta do is show up and you're gonna get an A. This is, what, this is what they found, here's a quote. Initially, the professor was concerned that because of this, all of his students would underperform. But in fact, the opposite happened. Because they were not afraid to fail, they took large risks, they were more creative, and they excelled greatly beyond his expectations. Instead of focusing on not failing, they focused on what they could actually do. And they were not frozen by a fear of failure. They were freed to be who they truly were as musicians because performance and being graded on that performance was not the basis of why they did what they did. I read that, I'm like, that'll preach. Why? Because in other words, they stopped living out of their fear of musical doing and began operating out of the indicative reality of their musical being. And as we get ready to close here in the room and on Guyana, as you guys are watching, here's my concern. That for a lot of people today, for a lot of people maybe even watching or in the room or listening online, for a lot of Christians even, we are living out of a state of perpetual struggle work, effort, to just try so hard not to fail, not to upset God, which is the beauty of the gospel. When we realize that we got an A, not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus has done, because of his righteousness, not your own, we are truly free to partake in the realities of our new nature because we are grounded in the almost unbelievable reality of who God tells us we are apart from what we do. It's not karma and it's not religious meritocracy, it's grace. Amazing, amazing grace. You can operate from a place of security, understanding that you are fully known and you are fully loved for all of eternity. Now, Pastor John, how do I do that? How do I walk in that? Peter tells us, you repent. It's the same landing spot that Peter gave his audience. You repent. Repentance is the gateway into this new reality, into embracing our new identity by grace through faith. And this morning, I'm praying that whether you're here in the room or watching online, you would find yourself in this gospel paradigm. You would find yourself somewhere in this framework of God's being, God's doing, 
our being, our doing. Keep that on the screen for just a moment because I want you to look at it. And Lord, I'm praying by your spirit, you would give us the, the gift of divine illumination and clarity. Where are you at in this framework? Another way to ask that is where, the, where do you spend the majority of your focus? Where have you gone off and, and need to repent or turn back to the Bible truth like Peter says, so times of refreshing may come. Where do you need to enhance your focus and learning? Are you spending all your time in the doing category and you really need to get back to the beginning of the story? Are you spending all your time at the beginning of the story and it's time to start moving along the continuum? I don't know where you're at, but Holy Spirit does and I'm praying that he would speak to your hearts. Right now, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this church. I love them so much. Thank you for what you're doing in Guyana. Thank you for what you're doing here in South Florida. Lord, it is by your grace that we stand. And God, it's by your grace that we walk. I wanna give you a moment just for response. If you're here and maybe you're watching online and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, here's the great news. You can become one this morning. You can become one today. You can embrace the forgiveness, the new identity, this new indicative reality of your new being that is found only in Jesus. Freedom and right standing with God found only in him. You're like, what do I do to do that? You just respond. If you're here in the room or watching online and you wanna become a follower of Jesus to access the forgiveness and the freedom that only he offers, I just want you to raise your hand up in the air right now. Just say, that's me, I wanna do it. Watch it online, here in the room, say, I, I wanna do that. Pastor John, I, I, need, I can't do this anymore on my own efforts. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, but, but having trouble, and this was really on my heart all week long as, as I prepared for this message. You're, you're a follower of Jesus. You mean it. It's genuine. It's in your heart, but you're having consistent trouble believing what he says about you. Hear me clearly. It's true. I know what you feel. I know what people have said about you. I know what life has looked like up to this point. What? God has to say is true. He loves you. He's a father in heaven who has good things planned for you. Plans for a hope and a future. And this morning as we close, we'll sing a final chorus here in the room, but as we close, I felt like we were supposed to close out praying Bible truth over you today. One of the beauties of God's kingdom is it's a family. And there's something that happens consistently when you feel stuck on your own and all of a sudden come, someone comes alongside of you and, and helps you walk in your journey to be closer to Jesus and closer to who he calls you to. And I felt like God wanted to specifically break some mental strongholds today where you can't get past not seeing yourself like God says he sees you. So why don't we close like this? If you, we could all stand to our feet. If you're there in Guyana, you guys can, can take it from there. Maybe spend a little bit of time in prayer. If you're online, you can request prayer right there in the chat, but I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come up and, and as Zach leads us in this final chorus, if, if you're struggling, if you wanna turn to Jesus, if you're, just, if you're a follower of Jesus, but you've just been stuck mentally and you're like, I, I, I know what he says, I just can't get myself to believe it. Like that, the connection between my head and my heart is just not happening. I think God wants to do something special. You're welcome to come forward as soon as we start to sing and receive some prayer, but let's close out together in worship.